0: science you can use the dr joe show on cjad 800 there's
1: antimony arsenic aluminum selenium and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel neodymium neptunium germanium and iron americium ruthenium uranium europium zirconium lutetium, vanadium and lanthanum and osmium and astatine and radium and gold protectinium and indium and gallium and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium Interesting show coming up. Well, of course, they're all interesting shows. But I will have a special guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Mogul, uh, who is a professor here at McGill in the psychology department, but his expertise is in pain. Uh, He researches pain with with animals, also uh, has some interesting things to say about uh, what we can do for pain in humans. So that will be coming up. Uh, in the second segment but um, let's get going today with k rations what are they well you may know k rations if you have studied any history uh, these were consumed by american soldiers during the second world war uh, they were field rations why were they called k rations Well, the name came from Dr. Ansel Keyes, K-E-Y-S, an American physiologist, who was asked to develop compact but nutritionally adequate ration packs for paratroopers after the U.S. became involved in the Second World War. Well, he went shopping in Minneapolis in a grocery store and concocted a mix of hard biscuits, dry sausage, hard candy, and chocolate. Not exactly the kind of food Dr. Keyes would eventually be recommending to the public, given that he was the first scientist to show a link between saturated fat intake and heart disease. Now that was back in 1947. After perusing and noting an increase in heart attack deaths, Keyes began a study of businessmen and found a link between blood cholesterol and heart disease. He went on to show that the culprit causing the high cholesterol levels was saturated fat in the diet, and for his effort received his nickname, Mr. Cholesterol. Keyes then launched his famed Seven Countries Study, which provided the first evidence that a diet rich in vegetables, fruit, pasta, bread, and olive oil with small amounts of meat, eggs, and dairy products reduced the risk of heart disease. Dr. Keyes died in November at the age of 100, a couple of years ago at his Italian villa, where he undoubtedly consumed many healthy Mediterranean style meals. But back in 1961, Time Magazine featured Dr. Keyes on its cover, credited and came with tracking down the cause of heart disease, and that instantly made saturated fat nutritional pariahs. But interestingly, a little digging into Key's work unearths an unsettling fact. It seems he actually studied 22 countries and did a little cherry picking of the data. If one plots all the data, the association between saturated fat and heart disease disappears. Furthermore, the classic Framingham Heart Study that linked blood cholesterol to heart disease showed no association between the disease and saturated fat. And today uh, there are still many, many questions being asked and, and the pendulum is, is swinging and scientific pendulums tend to, to swing as, as you well know. Uh, today, it seems that saturated fats are not the villains that they were made out to be. And certainly not all saturated fats are the same. The number of carbon atoms in the chain length of those fats may make a difference, so that the saturated fat in butter may not act in the body the same way as saturated fat in in coconuts. I also, well, I told you that we're gonna talk a little bit about pain just uh, later on in the show. So let me talk about another interesting pain connection. And this is through stinging nettle. You know, when the ancient Romans conquered Britain, they got a lesson in botany. They learned all about the woad plant, which the native warriors used to color their skin, a frightening blue, and they learned the hard way about stinging nettle. Well, that blue, you'll be familiar with that if you ever watched uh, Braveheart. Anyway, surely any plant that results in a burning skin rash just by touching the leaves leaves a memorable impression. The Romans also found something else in Britain that they had not seen back home, namely an inhospitable cold, damp climate. Their legs were undoubtedly cold in those little leather skirts Roman soldiers wore. So they had an idea. Why not rub their legs with a bit of stinging nettle, put up with the rash, and get some warmth? And that was the beginning of the investigation of the use of stinging nettle to treat human misery. Actually, medieval monks used it to increase misery. They flagellated themselves with nettle for penance. Today, if you check out herbal product dealers, you learn that stinging nettle taken internally is good for ailments ranging from acne and baldness to night sweats and varicose veins. Lots of claims no proof topical uses have a little more evidence they range from treatment of arthritis to the treatment of vaginitis somehow one would not think that applying an irritant substance like stinging nettle in that particular part of the female anatomy would be an attractive proposition but proponents claim that it is the pain that eventually results in gain actually at least for osteoarthritis there is some basis for this In a scientific study of 27 patients who suffered from osteoarthritis at the base of the thumb, stinging nettle afforded some relief. They rubbed the affected area with stinging nettle for 30 seconds a day for a week. Half the patients used nettle with the stinging principle intact. The other half used dried nettle, which no longer irritated the skin. After five weeks, the regimens were switched. We're not told what to expect. The stinging nettle actually helped, the results being best when it caused a wheel. It just may be that chemicals found in the plant, most most notably histamine, serotonin, or acetylcholine, affect pain receptors. Still, we have far better topical products today available for the relief of such pain. Creams containing capsaicin from hot peppers have far more scientific backing. Various stinging nettle preparations, particularly freeze dried tablets, have also been at least partially effective against asthma, allergies such as hay fever, and benign prostate enlargement. It is also a mild diuretic and has a mostly undeserved reputation for lowering blood pressure. But we have the usual problem of lack of regulations and lack of standardization, so you can never be sure what you are really getting. In any case, for all of the ailments listed, there are better proven remedies. That doesn't mean that stinging nettle is completely useless. During World War II, it was used to make an effective green camouflage paint. I wouldn't put it on my face, though. Anyway, it's interesting. But as you'll see from our our discussion with uh, Dr. Mogul coming up, when you do such studies, you have to take into account uh, modalities because, for example, just rubbing a painful area—never mind what you're rubbing with, whether it's stinging nettle or or nothing at all—that may have an effect. Uh, so you know you have to take these kind of things into into account. Well, anyway, I just tell you the story because I think that it is uh, interesting. Uh, not to promote any product that may contain stinging nettle because I just don't think there's very much evidence uh, uh, there. Uh, of course, whenever you're looking for evidence-based studies, uh, you can always check out our website, which is mcgill.ca/oss. Lots of interesting uh, articles there. And you can also go there to sign up for a free weekly newsletter that will arrive in your email inbox every Saturday morning at five o'clock with uh, some late research and also interesting stories about the world of science. Well, we're gonna take a break, check what traffic is like, and we'll be back with uh, my colleague, Dr. Jeffrey Mogul. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's Everyday
0: Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
1: My guest, as I mentioned, is Dr. Jeffrey Mogul, who's a colleague of mine here at McGill, and his main interest is pain, not inflicting it on students, but in alleviating it in others. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh,
0: thank you, Joe. Just for the record, I do, in fact, inflict it on students sometimes, <laughs> but we pay them.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we, we all do that, I guess, to some, <laughs> some, some, some degree. All right, well, uh, so much to talk about in, in terms of pain, but you have, uh, in the past few years, you've gotten a lot of publicity because of some research that you did with mice, which showed that whether or not the experimenter carrying out some sort of experiment on the mice is male or female, and somehow the animals were able to sense that. Give us the background on this. How, how did this all start? How did you even, Make such an observation.
0: Yeah. So, um, this is something that people were whispering about at meetings uh, for the past few decades, really. The idea that uh, people being in the room was uh, affecting uh, the behavior of research subjects, uh, rats and mice, and experiments. Um, and uh, one day one of my students came to me and said that they were running an experiment and they injected some sort of nasty inflammatory substance that should cause pain in mice and they were waiting for the mouse uh, to make the behavior they were expecting, which is uh, to lick their paw, and it wasn't happening, and they thought that maybe something went wrong with the injection or maybe the, uh, the inflammatory substance you know, had gone bad um, but then they said But it turned out to be fine because as soon as we left the room and turned on the cameras, that's when the licking started. Um, And I said to uh, my student, you know, people have expected that that sort of thing might be going on. But as far as I know, no one's ever uh, shown it to be true. Uh, So I said, you know, go and do it properly with all the proper controls. Um, And he did. And what we found uh, to our surprise was that everyone was only half right. It was male experimenters that were showing the effect. Um, That is to say, when male experimenters were in the room, the mice were analgesic. They had less uh, pain. Uh, They showed less pain behavior. Um, But when female experimenters were in the room, there was no effect at all.
1: It's an amazing observation. <laughs> and how it's did you pursue actually,
0: it in my mind, amazing that it took that long for anyone to notice. Um, and the effect is really, really big and very robust.
1: So how did you pursue this then?
0: Well, as soon as we determined that it was true, that uh, males were doing it and females weren't, then the question is how. Um, And uh, that is to say, was it uh, the mice looking at the males and maybe males were bigger and represented more of a predator? Uh, Was it sound? Was it smell? So we started uh, getting rid of the senses of mice one by one in various ways. Um, And it turned out that the effect was entirely olfactory. Um, It was something uh, that the males uh, were putting out there in their sweat, And we isolated the, the compounds in question. And we came to the final conclusion that mice aren't afraid of men so much as they're afraid of males. Um, and who they're really afraid of, of course, is male mice, mm-hmm. um, uh, because there might be a fight, there might be some sort of a dominant situation. Uh, and it just turns out that human males smell enough like male mice uh, that the same um, olfactory compounds were in play.
1: Well, of course, this now brings up the question of a human-human interaction, right?
0: Yeah, I'd really love to do this experiment in humans. In fact, we've given it a try um, by sort of pumping these same olfactory compounds uh, up the noses of uh, volunteers and exposing them to t-shirts that have been slept in by males or females, uh, the usual way these sorts of things are investigated. Um, And either the effect is very short-lived or very small in humans. Um, But either way, we've been unable to show that this effect is there in humans. I suspect that it is, but I also suspect that humans habituate to it very, very quickly.
1: Right. Well, as you, I'm sure you know, there have been a lot of human experiments with this uh, using purported male pheromones to attract women or vice versa. There are all kinds of products on the market, which... uh, Basically, are nothing more than uh, male underarm extracts that right. uh, are supposed to be attractive to to women. They're advertised in some of the sleazier magazines, and <laughs> also sometimes in in Discover magazine. Uh, uh, yeah, and
0: uh, for uh, many decades in the Atlantic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and you know there were stories where they would put uh, these scents on seats in a theater, and. Uh, Measure whether or not uh, women or men were more likely to sit in those seats uh, It was it's was pretty easy actually to poke holes in those experiments, but but yeah, uh, I
0: agree and um uh, one should remember that there's a big difference between what's being claimed there and what we were claiming so uh, there they were talking about sexual attraction um, our effect seems to come down simply to stress uh, in mice and rats it's very clear what the stress is about the stress is about a potential um, you know physical alteration um, but it, it's hard to argue that uh, in humans that, that that sort of thing is going to going to apply uh, nonetheless I still think it's possible again i think if there's any effect in humans it would be very short lasting and very small
1: yeah well you know the story of napoleon that that uh, he would write to josephine that she should not bathe uh, before he came home because that's he right. apparently was turned on by her scent
0: <laughs> that's right i've heard that so,
1: <laughs> so any anyway so um, given that you you made this um, observation and you work uh obviously a lot with mice uh how does how has this affected in how you actually (laughs) do the work and in terms of determining if it should be a male or a female student who works with the mice
0: right so that you know the joke we were making right after we uh, um, found this out and published the paper uh was that you know male graduate students should be fired immediately and all experiments should be done only by women um it turns out that uh, mice will habituate uh, to this effect uh, in about 20 to 30 minutes. So one way around the problem is simply to wait for a little while before you start testing the mice. Uh, I don't expect anyone's actually going to do that, frankly. Um, and so all we were really asking for at the end um, was that this is something that should go in methods sections. People should simply say whether the tester uh, of the animals in an experiment was uh, uh, male or female. Um, and in general in general, I think uh, that's something uh, that is really lacking in uh, scientific papers the way they currently are. There are methods sections, of course, uh, but they don't have nearly enough detail as they probably should. If you really want other people to be able to replicate your experiments, you need to tell them exactly what you did in a lot more detail than is uh, uh,
1: common at the present time. Now, what if a male and a female student are present at the same time in the lab?
0: Uh, yeah, the female uh, apparently cancels out the effect of the male. We did, <laughs> we did that experiment, yeah. Um, and so another way to do it, actually, is uh, if you simply put a T-shirt uh, that a female slept in the night before in the room with the male experimenter,
1: there doesn't seem to be any effect. Very interesting. Okay, Jeff, we've got to take a little bit of a break here, and then we'll uh, talk about some of your other uh, research in, in pain. Uh, Because obviously, uh, pain is probably the single most important feature in people's lives. When you're in pain, nothing else matters. Uh, My guest is Dr. Jeff Mogul. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. we're back with uh, Dr. uh, Jeff Mogul. We're talking about pain. And he is one of Canada's leading researchers in in pain. And I mean, obviously I don't have to tell you how important research in pain is because when you are in pain, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what the stock market is doing. It doesn't matter what's in the news. All you wanna do is get rid of that that pain. Uh, uh, Jeff, when, when I first came to McGill, which was many, many years ago as an undergraduate, uh, one of the first psychology courses I took uh, was from Ronald Melzack. and he, of course is sort of the, the grandfather of, of pain research and the Gate theory of, of pain. Uh, I know that there have been a lot of uh, changes in that theory since that time. So where does the world of pain now stand? in terms of Melzack's original research, and maybe you can just encapsulate what uh, Ronald Melzack originally uh, suggested as an explanation for how pain is perceived.
0: Sure. Um, so the gait control theory of pain was um, uh, published in Science in the 1960s by Ron and also Patrick Wall, who was a neurophysiologist in London. Um, and basically, uh, The the theory is a wiring diagram uh, in the spinal cord. Um, And it it sort of has two features, uh, one of which is, you know, which neurons talk to which neurons in the spinal cord. And that was mostly uh, Patrick Wall's doing, because that's what he studied for a living. Um, And Ron's big contribution uh, was to say... And whatever's going on in this wiring in the spinal cord, the brain is exerting top-down control. Basically, the brain is telling the spinal cord whether or not it's interested in hearing what the spinal cord has to say uh, at any one time. Um, and the interesting thing about the gate control theory is the original wiring diagram that was proposed is now known to be basically wrong. It's not completely wrong, but uh, it's, it's not correct in its details. Um, but Ron's part, the idea that the brain is sending information down to the spinal cord, basically saying... Either I want to hear about pain now, or I don't want to hear about pain now. Uh, that turned out to be remarkably true, um, and uh, still holds today, and is the basis of uh, most of the analgesic drugs um, uh, that we now know. So morphine and all the opiates work um, by interfering, uh, or act, actually not interfering, by activating uh, this descending mechanism that Ron. Served. theorized would exist.
1: One thing I remember very clearly sitting in in the class uh, when he proposed this idea that if you have a toothache, what you should do is pinch your hand in in between your thumb and your forefinger. And uh, I thought that was, you know, kind of a curious thing to...
0: It is curious. This is a phenomenon known as conditioned pain modulation, or um, uh, some people uh, refer to it as counter-irritation. And it's been known for um, centuries, really. In fact, I remember in my childhood, every time I complained to my father that I had a headache, he always said the same thing. He said, come here, I'll punch you in the arm, and you won't worry about your head anymore. Um, And it really is true. Pain in one place can inhibit pain in another another place and so that's a well-known phenomenon um the other well-known phenomenon by the way that's directly predicted by uh gay control theory um is if you rub an area that's uh, uh hurt um the rubbing tends to uh, make the pain better um and that's because touch information inhibits pain information
1: what about kissing that area
0: uh yep kissing would work too
1: <laughs> any any non-noxious mechanical stimulation should do it yeah you know, there there is actually this commercial device, which looks sort of like a clothespin, which uh, uh, basically does what Melzack said to do—that it pinches, you know, in, in the the skin between your thumb and your forefinger. Uh, You know,
0: that's apparently that that area between your thumb and your forefinger uh, is uh, supposed to be the most powerful uh, acupoint uh, in acupuncture. Um, And uh, well, you would know (laughs) more than uh, anyone else uh, just how controversial the whole idea is. Um, But apparently the acupuncturists say that that is the, uh, the, the most important and the most powerful point of them all.
1: Well, it may be the most sensitive point, whether or not poking yes. a needle into uh, it does anything that does. I think I
0: agree I've had acupuncture in that point, and I will never let anyone stick a pin there again. It's extraordinarily painful
1: right so the, anyway that, that that's a whether it actually does something that's a totally separate question on whether or not you <laughs> you feel feel something Indeed. okay the the other <clears throat> very hot area of course in, in pain research these days is cannabis what's what's the story there
0: well there's uh, as you know there's an uh, um, increasing amount of research um, on both uh, THC which is the psychoactive ingredient the the thing that gets you high, uh, and also CBD, um, which uh, is supposed to work for everything, uh, although there's very little evidence <laughs> that it, right now that it does anything at all. Um, my read on where this field is going uh, is that I think um, cannabinoids are going to turn out to be just like opioids, uh, in that they appear to work acutely, that is, for a short period of time, uh, they appear to be efficacious uh, against pain. Uh, but the longer the pain goes, um, the less well they work. And by a number of months, uh, after the injury, uh, when, when people have chronic pain, uh, increasingly the evidence suggests that opioids don't work and also cannabinoids don't work.
1: Right. <clears throat> there is tremendous amount of hype, of course, on the, on the internet, uh, about it. Indeed. Not only are yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, Especially only...
0: for CBD, um, yeah. and you know, hype fills voids in science, and so when there's very little evidence, uh, uh, hype just rushes right in to fill it.
1: Oh, um, absolutely, and you know what? What so often happens is that uh, something that uh, has been scientifically shown, uh, which may be a minor effect, but then is totally drowned out by the silly hype that uh, that ensues.
0: I agree. Sometimes things don't work, and people say they do. And sometimes things really do work a little bit. um, But if people can make money pretending that it works a lot, uh, they will do so, or at least try to do so.
1: And of course, also, we're biochemically very individual. And it's very possible that something will work better in one person than in another. So I've spent
0: much of my career looking at precisely those individual differences. And uh, the variability is as big as you can imagine. Uh, I am thinking of one experiment that uh, happened at the NIH. Uh, They took 500 people and they gave them exactly the same thermal stimulus to the arm, um, a certain temperature for a certain amount of time. And they had them rate that stimulus on a scale from zero doesn't hurt at all to 100. That's the worst pain that I can imagine. Um, And people gave ratings um, ranging from 5 to 95. Um, right. The exact same stimulus, completely different perceptual experiences. Um, well, in that
1: context, uh, there's another issue that I want to explore a little bit, and that, of course, is the placebo effect. Hmm. But we've got to take a bit of a break here. Uh, but we'll be right back with Dr. Jeff Mogel, expert in pain. You're listening to the Dr. Joe show. Stay with us.
0: Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
1: Okay, we're back with uh, Dr. Jeff Mogul, a colleague here at McGill, and we're talking about pain. And I want to chat a little bit about the placebo effect. A lot of confusion about this because people just tend to dismiss it. They'll say, oh yeah, that's just a placebo effect, right? Well, it's not just a placebo effect. Uh, If someone feels better, They are better right uh
0: i completely agree in fact i would go further and say uh the placebo effect is the most reliable most robust um uh, effect in all of biomedicine (laughs) i mean it's really hard to beat the placebo effect uh that's why they run clinical trials in the first place and, and and maybe that's why most clinical trials
1: fail um the placebo effect is huge yeah I, I mean the number that is usually quartered is thirty forty percent of the time. People will respond to something that they believe is uh, is going to be good for them. And the you know the interesting thing that I found you know reading about some of this is that people will respond to the placebo effect even when they're told that it's a placebo that they're taking. Uh, and I, I find that sure. amazing myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um... I'm not sure how one would interpret that. Um, I mean, one, one theory is that they think that when you tell them that they're taking a placebo, you're actually tricking them that you're doing some sort of research and you're actually giving them an active drug, but telling them that it's a placebo because you want to see what the effect is of saying that it's a placebo.
0: It's hard to know what's going on. We published a a study a few years ago where we looked at the results of clinical trials for uh, chronic pain uh, over the last three decades. And what we found was that over time, um, the placebo response, that is, uh, how well people did in the placebo arms of those clinical trials, uh, had been getting bigger over time. Um, it was almost nothing in the early 90s, and now uh, it's pretty big, 20%, 30% decreases in pain levels. Um, and the curious thing, by the way, about this study was that this effect was really, really big in clinical trials that occurred in the United States uh, and much, much smaller in clinical trials uh, um, uh, that were elsewhere in the world. Um, and we have no idea what's causing uh, that change over time. Uh, but one possibility is changing notions uh, of placebo. Um, and the more that you have learned somehow that the placebo effect is real, not a trick, um, the more likely you are to respond. Um, I wonder what you think of that as an explanation. There
1: are other yeah, possibilities. I think that, that, that makes sense. But it, you know, it's also interesting that the degree of invasiveness of the uh, intervention also makes a difference.
0: Oh, yes, so, absolutely. So uh, surgeries have bigger placebo effects than uh, injections and injections have bigger placebo effects than pills. If you charge more for the pill, you get a bigger placebo effect than if you charge less for the pill. Um, it, it's really fascinating, actually.
1: Yeah. And if you connect them to some machine that has lots of Bells and whistles and lights blinking and everything—you uh, get a much better effect than than when you don't see lights flashing. Indeed. And people should remember that
0: there's not just the placebo effect, there's its uh, inverse, the nocebo effect. If you uh, uh, expect to get worse, you will in fact also get worse. We've been doing a lot of work in my lab at the present time on uh, mouse models of the nocebo effect, Um, mostly having to do with if you put uh, animals, and we're going to try to do this experiment with people too. In fact, we have done it with people at least one time. If you put them back in the same place that they had pain before, they'll be more sensitive to pain because somehow they expect it to happen
1: yeah well the nocebo effect is something that I I, I deal with when uh, people believe that they have reactions to what they think are toxic substances ah yeah you know whether or not it's uh, electrosensitivity people think that they're going to react to to the uh, electric meters on their houses or to to uh, their cell phones or or to power lines Indeed, another
0: example, I just came back from a migraine meeting, and there's some reason to believe uh, that lots of so-called migraine triggers uh, are actually sort of Pavlovian conditioned nocebo effects. Um, it isn't really the chocolate. It's that you uh, somehow had paired chocolate with headache a few times, uh, and now you believe it's the chocolate that's doing it, but it's really right. not necessarily. Thanks.
1: Now, the, the problem with the nocebo effect, uh, for example, in you know, the people who believe that they're electrosensitive and have to live in these environments where you know, they're devoid of all electricity and et cetera, the fact is that whether or not that really is the, the nocebo effect or not, these people are really suffering, right? So for them, it's real. And whether uh, it's coming from the mind or from the power line, doesn't really make a difference to them. The suffering is real. 100%, a perception
0: is, is in the mind. Uh, the placebo effect and the nocebo effect are in the mind because everything,
1: everything is in the mind because what else is there? Absolutely, I mean, this is why, you know, your area is just so, so interesting and of course, so applied because everyone is somehow familiar with, with pain uh, let me ask you this uh, this last thing because you you've talked a lot about uh, doing experiments with mice and of course animals are are models for humans, but obviously they're not not humans. Do you have any any kind of uh, interaction with the animal rights activists who take issue with uh, you know, injecting mice in their foot to, to see whether or not they have pain?
0: Yeah, on on occasion, uh I would have to say that um uh, animal rights activism has died down uh, over the past few decades. Um at least in North America, it's still uh going strong in Europe for reasons that I, I can't figure. Uh but in North America there's much less um, you know, kind of outrage that there used to be. Um and of course, uh you know it, it should be said uh, that uh, work with animals is regulated you know like you wouldn't believe um, and you know we use the least painful stimuli that we can for our purposes and the fewest number of animals that we can for our purposes um, but in my mind this is uh, ethically justified um, because um, you know at any one time uh, 20% of the human population is suffering uh, With chronic pain, there's very little that we can do about it. We're very poor at treating it. Uh, Your lifetime chances of being in chronic pain are one in two. Um, And when you're faced with a, uh, you know, a medical and societal problem of that magnitude, uh, I think we also have an ethical imperative to do everything we can to uh, try to help these people. Um, Absolutely, chronic pain is a horrific thing, and uh, there's just too many people
1: suffering makes you desperate i mean i can tell you just to finish off your personal experience i once suffered from uh, uh, urinary retention you know when you can't pee i tell you that pain was so horrific that i i I would have even taken a homeopathic drug if someone offered it to me (laughs) oh you wow Anyway, Jeff, thanks a lot for uh, for guesting, and I hope we didn't inflict too much pain on our listeners, but we did open their minds to all of the fascinating research that is going on. It's nice thanks to be here, Jeff. Lot. So that's it for today. We are smack out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Till then, I'm George Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. And cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There is sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and, and argon, kryptonium, radon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.